It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hell of Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sleepwalkers is a production of iHeartRadio and Unusual Productions. We can choose to have a poker face, but the point is that our bodies are still reacting. And what's changed is the ability to see those signals. That's Poppy Crum, chief scientist at Dolby Labs and a professor at Stanford University. Her work is at the forefront of neuroscience and data science, and it's bad news for the poker face. Free Solo just won an Academy Award, and the filmmakers were at my company doing a a screening, and we had captured uh, carbon dioxide of the audience with their approval, of course. And I wasn't actually at the screening. I just saw the CO2 capture, and I knew exactly where the climbs were, where he abandoned his climbs. As the audience watched Annex Honnold attempt to climb El Capitan, their bodies responded to the suspense. Their breathing changed. And thanks to the carbon dioxide sensors in her theater, Poppy had a map of the audience's emotional experience. It's this power of the audiences on that journey and experiencing it you know, with the filmmakers. And it's pretty exciting to see that engagement in the theater and to have that history. But our breath isn't our only tell. There's an increasing number of ways machines are becoming able to read us, even how hard we're thinking. In thermal cameras, you can track, uh, you can look at dynamics of blood flow to know stress levels and engagement. Just in the infrared uh, signatures, you can understand cognitive load. You can then look at microexpressions of facial recognition to get past not just if I'm feigning emotion, but really the authenticity of what I'm experiencing. That gives us a lot of insight about how hard my brain is working and how engaged I am. We haven't changed as humans. What's changed is ubiquity of sensors and the capacity of sensors and the cost. Just 15 years ago, the cost of a typical device would be about maybe $20,000, $25,000. Now you're looking at those devices not even having to be close up for pennies, dollars, integrated into every pair of smart glasses going forward. 
We're on the cusp of two explosions. The power of machine learning to find patterns and make predictions, and, simultaneously, the miniaturization and affordability of cameras and other sensors. Last episode, we talked about facial recognition and surveillance by governments. But when machines can track how we're feeling, our most private selves become readable. And while that may sound frightening, it also holds enormous promise for many parts of life, from beginning to end. This episode, we look at what's changing and what's possible. I'm Oz Veloshin. This is Sleepwalkers. Mama, mama. So, Kara, <laughs> there are quite a lot of situations where, personally, I don't actually want to be read. I'm not sure about you. Like... I want to hold them like they do in Texas play. Like when I'm playing Texas Hold'em. I don't want people to know what I'm thinking. Right, and not just at the poker table. In fact, our society kind of relies on the idea that we can look one way but feel another. Obviously in plays like Hamlet, interiority is dramatized. Um, but, But more broadly, societies where people have no privacy tend to be a bit scary. It is scary because the last thing we have on earth is our privacy. You know, it's like people have this impulse to share everything on Instagram and give away their name to a company that wants to sell them jewelry. And it's just like, truly, our deep, our secrets are the last thing we have. Well, (laughs) the last thing we had. Right. Poppy did a full TED Talk on this, and the thing that I took away from it is, will we live in a near future where a slasher film will be edited with people's biometric data in mind? Well, Poppy certainly sees that on the horizon, and she has a term for technology that starts to understand us. Empathetic technology is the idea that, you know, it's it's not technology that empathizes with me or technology that is trying to emulate human empathy. It's technology that makes use of my internal experience to be able to integrate that as part of its interface. Today, it's impressive that Poppy can understand an audience's emotional journey watching Free Solo by tracking the levels of CO2 in their breath. But tomorrow, it could lead to new kinds of art and entertainment that responds to us. A really great hip-hop producer I was talking to wants to create music that is personalized, almost like a tailored suit for individuals. So you start to think about a very dynamic integration of the human experience. That experience becomes something that our technology can be aware of and optimized for. I want my technology to make the right decisions so that the experience I have with it is seamless. Seamless. Such a seductive word they named a food delivery service after it but a dangerous word too. Because for technology to read and respond to us in real time, it needs to make decisions about us on its own. You may remember last episode, we spoke with Lisa Talia Moretti about some of the risks of facial recognition technology, but that's not her only area of research. Something that I was looking into really recently is our relationship with technology is completely shifting. So we're moving from a relationship with technology where we are asking it to do something. You know, it's a pure sort of uh, input output. And what now we're moving towards is a relationship with technology where we are trusting technology to make decisions on our behalf. Lisa teaches at Goldsmiths in London and Cardiff University. She told us about how her students have encountered technology making its own decisions about their future prospects. One of the things that the students are starting to do is to game the uh, algorithms that are being used to mine through candidates' CVs. 
And so what they figured out is if they put right in white text anywhere on their CV, um, Cambridge, Harvard, Oxford, they're more likely to get through to the interview process. The students know that recruiting algorithms prioritize applications from certain schools. So they pepper their applications with words they know the algorithm will like, but written in white so the human recruiters are none the wiser. They're marketing themselves straight to the AI. They're gaming the algorithm system, which I think is pretty genius. <laughs> There's also certain things where students or candidates who are having to conduct their first interview in some companies purely online and there's no person on the other side, you're essentially talking into your webcam and there's algorithmic technology that is recording your voice, that's listening for intonation, that's listening for the types of words that you're saying. Like if you use smart words or if your language isn't perhaps at a level that they would think is appropriate for business, but do we want computers to deny opportunities to job applicants who may be qualified but not fully polished without human review? And the algorithms weren't only analyzing the students' words. They're also looking at your facial features and so they can say if you were nervous or shy. And some of my students have said that if they very quickly use like hand gestures, they confuse the camera and the camera can't see if they were nervous or shy for those particular moments. There's something quite hopeful about these students subverting the algorithms designed to read them. It's not quite the summer of 68, Cara, but the youth have still got something. Well, it's true that you and I both look very good in black leather and are considered cyberpunks. That's how we met. That's right. Cyberpunk <laughs> rally. Uh-huh. I was reading about this Kickstarter campaign called Reflecticles. Like spectacles, but reflective. That's right. And that's because... They reflect invisible and infrared light when you look back into a camera that's watching you. Wow. Which is like an ultimate, that's like a techie middle finger. <laughs> like, I'm going to look right back in this camera and it's just going to, like, buzz light back at it. Completely. So, you know, there are methods, obviously, for resistance. But what I'm worried about is that algorithms are very smart and they will wise up and be harder to trick. Right, and showing up for your job interview in Reflecticles probably carries its own uh, burden as well. It is how I got this job, though. (laughs) But we should also ask ourselves why these companies are using AI to filter candidates and conduct interviews. And of course, it's really about saving money and saving resources, which brings up the big question of the series. Who benefits from this new technology? Amazon does. (laughs) And Facebook and Google. Mm. When we come back, we look at the economics of giving up our data and what we get in return. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. Is getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, fam. I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Every weekday, we bring you conversations with the culture makers who inspire us. Like our recent episode with Hollywood royalty Regina and Raina King. We talked about the creative power of women's relationships. I feel like, thank God for women, like, especially when it comes to Black women the way we lean on our mothers, our grandmothers, our sisters, our friends. We're just each other's pulse. I mean, it's molecular, you know? Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sensors and AI that analyze our response to movies or decide if we're a good fit for a job may sound like the stuff of dystopian science fiction. And that's because it is. Set up a perimeter and tell them we're en route. I'm placing you under arrest for the future murder of Sarah Marks. Give the man his hand. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Minority Report because... um, to this day, <laughs> so many years later, decades later, I'll be in some meeting in Silicon Valley and we'll be looking at some gadget. And uh, so we'll say, wow, this gadget's great. It's like from Minority Report. It's so cool. And I'm like, that was supposed to be cautionary. <laughs> that was a description of the bad world. That was what we want to avoid. Oh, for God's sakes. That's Jaron Lanier. He's a research scientist at Microsoft. And in the 80s, he coined the term virtual reality after helping invent the field. Jaron's thought a lot about what our relationships with technology mean for us. So when Steven Spielberg was making Minority Report, he called on Jaron to act as a technology consultant. Mostly what I've taken from Minority Report is that just trying to do cautionary portrayals of technology actually backfires because there's some way that it's a little bit like when you show the life of billionaires, people don't get angry about like, why do those people monopolize? Why do they own whole islands or something? Instead, they say, oh, I identify with that person. Maybe I could own a whole island someday. And despite our fascination with dystopian fiction, we also have a tendency to fantasize about ourselves as the beneficiaries, not the victims of the systems we create. And we tend to ascribe those systems their own will, even though we've made them. Early in the history of capitalism, Adam Smith suggested that capitalism or markets were an invisible hand, a sort of a life form. And in the same way that you can interpret a market as being this living thing, (laughs) just because it's a little beyond our understanding, it's a little too complicated to fully predict and fully understand, and, and that's actually its power. In the same way, big computational systems can be a little out of control, not entirely, but even if they're only a little bit, you can interpret that 
as being the new invisible hand, which we call artificial intelligence. Invoking an external force like the invisible hand or an algorithm that automatically reads resumes or makes parole recommendations obscures real human decisions. We have to remember that our creations reflect us. If you use that to abdicate your responsibility, if you use it just to cower in fear, then you're not being a good computer scientist. That is not the responsible way to do things. Just as if an economist says, well, the invisible hand says all these people should starve, that's not a responsible economist. The responsible economist fixes the problem. In a sense, I think it's very hard to be effective if you believe in some kind of magical agency in your own inventions. I think you make yourself into an idiot. And, and, and so I'm, I'm really concerned that not only economists, but computer scientists uh, make that error all, all the time. It's almost like a new form of mythology. I've been calling it alchemy lately, but yeah, sure. It's certainly easier to say, oh, we should respect this amazing autonomous living thing that has arisen in our own inventions. It's much easier to say that when it's benefiting you and you're getting very rich. Jaron puts his finger on a central irony in our relationship with technology. When our creations benefit us, we're quick to forget who pays the price. People who translate between natural languages, such as between English and Spanish, have seen their career prospects on the whole decrease uh, tenfold since the arrival of automatic translation, which is offered for free by companies like Google and Microsoft. Now, the thing is, you might say, well, this is very sad, but it always happens. People are made, people's jobs become obsolete uh, when new technologies come along. The buggy whip goes away and the motor car comes. All right. But the problem is that every single day, those of us who help run these free services have to scrape or steal tens of millions of example phrases from all over the world from people who don't know it's being done to them. And the reason why is every single day there's new pop culture and slang and public events and memes and on and on. And so you need to constantly get new phrase examples to feed into the translation engines. So it's a weird thing. We're telling the people, you don't get a job anymore because you're not needed. Oh, by the way, you're needed. We need to steal with you. Oh, but by the way, we won't even tell you. And it's all based on this lie that we don't need people. Um, and that lie is based on this need to pretend the AI is this freestanding thing. Whereas we could instead think of it as just a way that software can channel value between people in a new and better way. The free availability of real-time translation opens up a world of possibilities for travelers, for language learners, for long-distance lovers. But these technologies have invisible costs, like the translators losing their jobs to a tool that was trained on their work. And this kind of unpaid labor is actually something all of us participate in every day without even realizing. Here's Lisa again. The way that these voice-activated assistants are being trained is through huge amounts of data. A bit of an unknown secret by many people who have an Alexa is that every single time you are talking to that device, it's being recorded and being stored and going back to the cloud to train all of the other Echoes around the world. So the users of Echo devices are providing free labor on behalf of these massive organizations in order to train the system. It's not the first thing we think that after purchasing an Alexa and using it to buy stuff online, every time we interact with it, we're also helping Amazon improve and make more money. But framing our data in terms of labor helps us think about technology in new ways. And our Alexa use reminds Jaron of another science fiction movie. 
The recent one that's really gotten to me is that probably the most famous cautionary tale about computers was uh, in 2001, Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke's movie. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. And there's this computer called Hal that's this round thing that sits on the wall and just looks at you and talks to you. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. And it ends up going berserk and killing people and just and they have to deprogram it. And the, the hot new gadget of the last few years has been this round thing that sits there and looks at you and you talk to it. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. <laughs> These smart speakers and so on. And it's like, no matter how many cautions we put forward, people just fall right into it. It's, it's astonishing to me. Of course, Alexa is powered by artificial intelligence. It takes machine learning to understand what you say to it. But maybe the bigger breakthrough has been our decision to let listening devices into our homes. Yeah, I think that's true. I didn't grow up talking to something in my house. It's interesting, when you read those articles like deep inside North Korea. <laughs> you know, the thing the journalists always write is, there's a speaker in every house which projects the chairman's voice into the homes. And that's always this shocking detail. And of course, now we will have Alexas in our houses. You know, I think it's interesting that Amazon was being delivered to us, the boxes on our doorstep, that was the farthest they were going to get, right? And now with Echo and Dot. These are devices that are inside of our homes, that are on our countertops. We're at this place where Alexa is now a part of the family. And now we have this first generation of children growing up with Alexas and other smart devices at home, interacting with them, seeing their parents talk to them all the time. And they're already used to this responsive technology. The giving away our data piece is disconcerting, but there's another piece of our shifting relationship with technology. Which is why I dragged Julian to New Jersey to one of the smartest homes I know. And no, I'm not talking about IQ. Oh, let me ask you a question. What does your little brother look like? A little guy. <laughs> so what would you say, what does Alexa look like? A robot. A robot? Yes. But where does she live? In space. Really? So every time you talk to Alexa, you're talking to space? Yeah. <laughs> Despite having an Alexa who lives in space, my friend and her husband live in the suburbs with their sons, who are almost two and five. When they recently moved to New Jersey to fit their expanding family, they did not scrimp on smart home devices. Yeah, we've got two little kids. We both work. It doesn't bother me that they know our habits to make it easier for us, like, to get stuff done. Like, I'm cool with Amazon just sending me diapers because it knows when I need diapers. For parents like my friends, devices like the Amazon Alexa, Google Home, and their myriad counterparts are genuinely helpful, which is probably why over 118 million American households have a smart speaker. That's half of the U.S. And when you've got something so involved in your home life that it helps with diapers and groceries, it's bound to affect some other areas as well. Your dad said there are two, there are, th three. Are there, three? there are three women in the house. I'm good, does Google. Yeah, who else? Alexa. Who else? I don't know. Who's on the phone? Who's the third woman in the house? Uh, Siri. No. <laughs> what about mom? <laughs> and even bedtime is different. Hey, Google, tell me a story. Sure, here's one from Nickelodeon. It was a sunny day, and Mr. Porter was visiting Farmer Yummy. He'll have all Google read him a story when he's in bed, and we don't want to read any more books. <laughs> Do you ever hear Google go off when you guys have closed the door? Oh, yeah. Yeah. To be clear, Google Home has not replaced real-life bedtime stories. But it has enabled my friend's kid to get more out of bedtime. He can keep asking for stories long after his parents need to stop reading. But focusing on the privacy component of these devices doesn't capture the full picture. 
Not only can the rhythms of family life change in response to a digital assistant, but so can kids' expectations. And that's true for all of us, even those of us already past early childhood development. We should think about how we're affected long-term by our expectation of seamless delivery. You got a good rapport with those kids, Kara. Thanks. Neither of us have our own kids, but our editor, Mangesh, does. And I was curious for his take on Alexa joining the family. So I'd gone out to this wedding a couple of years ago in Seattle, and it was in this fancy hotel, and there was an Alexa there in the room. And Lizzie and I went out for dinner or something, and we left the kids with a sitter. And the kids were mesmerized because they'd never encountered one of these devices before. So they were watching the babysitter interact with it, calling up music and whatever else. But then she also ordered food. So they were just floored by this. Then the next week we were back at home and I was watching my four-year-old just like stomping around the house. And she started barking, Alexa, pizza. (laughs) And it was just so confusing. She immediately knew that there was this thing you could just bark at it and and get food and she wanted results but I have a conflicted feeling about all of this because I'd grown up in the states very middle class and every couple of years we go to India and visit my relatives who were a little wealthier and we went to a party once with one of my cousins and I saw this kid who was super wealthy and he was yelling at his chauffeur he was yelling at his mom he was barking at the maid that they had. And and it was just so gross. And when you see this sort of entitlement in front of you and expressed in this way, you don't want your kids growing up with that, right? And you want everyone to be treated as humans. And and so for my daughter to be stomping around barking what she wanted, you know, I, I don't want that to be her way of speech. This kind of reminds me of the movie Invasion of the Body Snatchers, except the Mangesh version, which is that, you know, he went out to dinner with his wife. He comes back. His daughter is like, Alexa, pizza. And he's like, what has Alexa done with my child? (laughs) You know, she was like this sweet little girl, and now she's like a child that's aware of an Alexa. Based on one encounter. Right. I feel like if an alien came down from space and came into my apartment and saw me cooking dinner and then saw me go, Alexa, turn on Paul Simon radio. The alien would be like, is she yelling at a woman who's going to go turn on the music? Um, I think right now we are all, you know, Mangesh's daughter included, participating in this life-altering moment of self-delusion where we're sort of collectively accepting smart devices in our homes. Well, we're not just accepting them, we're treating them as human. Right, and I think this is the slipperyish slope of using voice assistance more and more. We're speaking to voice-activated devices as though they're our family members, And there have got to be some long-term implications, both emotional and psychological, of blurring the line. I agree. Uh, And we're going to hear more from Jaron about that after the break. But we'll also speak to Poppy Crum again, who believes that we've barely scratched the surface of how these devices can change how we live for the better. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. 
I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Every weekday, we bring you conversations with the culture makers who inspire us. Like our recent episode with Hollywood royalty Regina and Raina King. We talked about the creative power of women's relationships. I feel like, thank God for women. Like, especially when it comes to Black women, the way we lean on our mothers, our grandmothers, our sisters, our friends, we're just each other's pulse. I mean, it's molecular, you know? Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Children interacting with Alexa and Siri and other digital assistants is particularly striking because of the developmental implications. But interacting with machines who understand and respond to us can raise questions about who and what gets to be treated as a person. Here's Jaron. I think the problem isn't the math or the computer science algorithms. I think the problem is our framework for thinking about them tends to be machine-centric instead of human-centric, and it tends to create dangers for the whole and to, and to create a lot of confusion. And a lot of it is because of this ideology of thinking of the machine as being alive. And when we remember that our AI inventions aren't alive and simply reflect the inputs we give them, we can do a better job at harnessing their power for good. You may remember Kai-Fu Lee from the last episode. Before running Google China, Kai-Fu worked at Apple, where he helped develop Siri. AI is programmed by people. It is up to us to remove the factors that we don't think is appropriate to be considered in a decision from an AI. So if we want to eliminate sexual orientation from a long uh, decision engine, we can do that. Or if we want to eliminate it from a job application, we can do that. It's actually better than people. You can't force people to completely ignore uh, these sort of things from their decision. They can try, but our brains are not separable in that way. AI engines actually are. 
Being able to program our way out of our messier human biases is a big deal, but it's only made possible when we acknowledge that we control what an algorithm learns from. So if we get it right, just how good could our relationship with technology get? Here's Poppy Crumb again. I had a relative who, you know, was uh, at the end of life, and I was with him for the last few weeks in the hospital. He hadn't been speaking for a couple of days. I had taken an Amazon Alexa. I was using it simply to play music. I was playing classical music. And all of a sudden he says, Alexa, play Al Green. And I was like, what? <laughs> and, and, you know, and... You know, Poppy had always interacted with her uncle through classical music. It was their thing. And here he was, at the end of his life, requesting R&B, an interest she didn't even know he had. He wanted to hear Al Green and Sly and the Family Stone. I was like, nowhere near that. But the empowerment the device allowed at a very vulnerable and sensitive and important time, he smiled at end of life. And it's the access to memories, the access to that internal richness, the things that might bring someone the most comfort are, we, we all don't know. Amazon's Alexa really opened up great opportunities for what our relationship with our technology can be. Suddenly, Alexa isn't just something that dims your lights or tells you if it's raining as you rush out of the door, but actually a device that can change profoundly how you live and die. And Poppy noticed other ways an Alexa could have helped her uncle beyond playing Al Green. I sat in a hospital room where I saw errors be made. I saw information be captured incorrectly, written on the board one way, uh, shared to a different nurse another, shared to a different doctor another. And I saw all of these different things happen that with the right coordination of that same device that just allowed my uncle to hear Al Green on cue, it could have also been a huge part of improving not just his mental wellness, but his physical wellness. Because we're humans, we make errors, we make mistakes. We're not good at integrating information all the time. And our fallacy comes in places that technology can solve. I don't want to discount hospital staff. They work very hard uh, and, and everything. But people are sometimes, you know, haven't had enough sleep or they don't know someone else. You know, people try to help at different points in time and end up sometimes introducing error and mistakes. Technology that's actually capturing or registering information for a user, there's obvious ways that it can help improve the interaction. To Poppy, the true power of Alexa is not to respond to specific requests like a super assistant. It's to monitor us constantly, detecting patterns that we can't, more like a parent. And as of now, as far as we know, that's not what it does. What Alexa does right now is not what would actually benefit us most from a healthcare perspective, right? Alexa is listening for a wake word. Uh, it's listening for a particular cue. It's not holding that longitudinal data to learn our behaviors and, and such right now. Not because of technological barrier, no because of, I think, social and privacy barriers. And those barriers tend to erode in response to new technology. 20 years ago, we would never have believed we would summon strangers from the internet and climb in their cars either. You know, so we evolve when the capacity, when the convenience is introduced and the capability. Clearly, technological innovation is only part of the equation. Becoming comfortable with new uses for those technologies opens up new worlds of possibilities in everything from how we listen to music to how we take care of each other. So let's say we accept this new bargain 
and open ourselves up to constant monitoring, what might the future look like? Companies are looking at these things as ways of knowing not just someone is taking their medicine for an aging population or someone who's healing, but to know if actually they're depressed. Are they under mental stress as well? And that becomes a great opportunity for autonomous living for elders, where a caretaker knows a lot more about how well the individual is healing and is doing at a particular point in time. There's this real irony in all of these situations that where through more tracking of my information comes freedom and you gain autonomy through the amalgamated data. There is an age-old belief that the more privacy we have, the more freedom we have. But Poppy says it's time to rethink that relationship. If you look at an elder who might otherwise be in a care home, but instead gains 10 years of autonomous living because you now have more ubiquitous understanding of their mental and physical wellness. You have people having a lot more freedom with simply having a richer understanding of their internal experience and their personal data. Crucially, if we're to feel comfortable trading our privacy for more agency, we need to be very sure we can trust the people who get to see our data. Because they're not just seeing us naked, they're seeing under the hood, the physiological tells that betray our private emotions. For me, everything is about transparency. No one should be tracked when they don't know they're being tracked. How our technology interacts with us, whether we share information or not, our technology can know. I think that's the real issue. We have to recognize that the sort of cognitive sovereignty or agency that we believe in is a thing of the past. It means we have to redefine what that future looks like. It's a future we can all participate in building, and it's one we're better off building as citizens with a collective voice and long-term objectives rather than as lone consumers in search of the best deal, whatever the cost to us and society. As Poppy says, there's a difference between an Alexa waking up to respond to commands like play Al Green and an Alexa that is always on, building a model of our behavior that knows us better than we know ourselves. But the crux of that difference is more cultural and political than technological. Are we willing to give up our poker faces and allow ourselves to be read by sensors and algorithms in return for longer, safer, happier lives, like Poppy's uncle? Or, Knowing the history of governments who have monitored and categorized citizens, should we be doing everything we can to hit pause? Will our technology become a safety net or a spider's web? Next episode, we travel to Facebook's headquarters and investigate some of the more dangerous corners of the internet. And knowing that AI can both learn about us and imitate us, we take a hard look at deep fakes and examine a world where it's increasingly difficult to tell truth from fiction. I'm Oz Veloshin. See you next time. Walkers is a production of iHeartRadio and Unusual Productions. For the latest AI news, live interviews, and behind-the-scenes footage, find us on Instagram at Sleepwalkers Podcast or at sleepwalkerspodcast.com. Special thanks to Bryony Cole. We had a conversation with Bryony that made this episode possible, and Bryony is the host of a fascinating podcast called Future of Sex that's all about using technology to make our lives better. 
Sleepwalkers is hosted by me, Oz Voloshin. And co-hosted by me, Carol Price. We're produced by Julian Weller, with help from Jacopo Penzo and Taylor Shacoin. Mixing by Tristan McNeil and Julian Weller. Our story editor is Matthew Riddle. Recording assistance this episode from Topher Ralph and Phil Bodger. Sleepwalkers is executive produced by me, Oz Voloshin, and Mangesh Hatikada. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Alexa, pizza! It's brand new, season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people. In an unscripted, unvarnished way. Is getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine and I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.